The unjust knife took the life of a successful businessman to serve a corrupt purpose. Twenty knives appeared on the victim's body, including the skull, neck, back, indicating that the perpetrator was very angry with him, or that the perpetrator was an abnormal nerve. Welcome back to our channel. Today we will explore together about a case that shook the whole of Australia. The child-faced murderer brutally assaulted Morgan Huxley at his apartment. We'll help you uncover the horrifying details of this case, from how he killed his victim to the terrifying clues and details of the investigation. Get ready for a terrifying and terrifying adventure in our criminal world. Therefore, take a deep breath and walk with me through the dark. This is the situation that Morgan Huxley finds himself in. Good morning, and welcome back to the Emerald City, often known as Sydney, which is located in the country of Australia. You are not going to be surprised by what I have to say. The cost of living is somewhat high in Sydney despite the city's many attractions, including its excellent climate and high-quality leisure options. Let's change the subject and have a conversation about the area surrounding Sydney instead. The Blue Mountains are a rough mountain range that can be found to the west of this region. They are famous for the stunning landscape that includes steep cliffs, waterfalls, and eucalyptus trees. The Pacific Ocean may be found to the east of here. And, well, that brings us to the end of our discussion. Regardless of whether it is due to its proximity to the mountains or the coast, Sydney is a stunning city that is surrounded by a significant quantity of nature and animals. Putting the focus on our argument, this day finds us at the Sydney neighborhood of Neutral Bay, which is located on the lower north coast of the city. Neutral Bay was once called as Wirrabira by the Aboriginal people, who are the indigenous people of Australia. When it became the shore for all international cargo ships, the name was changed to Neutral Bay. These days, Neutral Bay is a prosperous neighborhood that is well known for having a young population. And of course, real estate prices in the region have reached an all-time high. Despite this, we are able to identify Morgan Huxley in the year 2013 on Watson Street. Morgan was a man who radiated intelligence and charisma. He shared an apartment with his body and flatmate, Jean Redmond, who was a physiotherapist from Ireland and was 24 years old. The flat had two bedrooms. Morgan Huxley was the youngest of three children born to Alan and Dee Huxley. His sister Tiffany was 10 years older than him, while his brother Oliver was seven years older than him. Morgan was the youngest of the three. Unfortunately, Morgan's mother and father divorced when he was in elementary school. Nonetheless, this setback was not enough to weaken the close tie that existed between the members of the family. The fact that Morgan subsequently went on to study ocean engineering at TAFE, which is Australia's system for technical and further education, demonstrates that he was not hindered in any way by this circumstance in his pursuit of academic achievement. Despite the fact that Morgan's mother, sister, and brother were all painters and graphic designers, he decided to pursue a career in ocean engineering instead of following in their creative footsteps and becoming an artist or designer like the rest of his family. 
Morgan has a nice build and was liked by everyone who met her. He towered over the majority of people despite his laid-back, friendly, and affable demeanor despite the fact that he was over six feet tall and weighed fourteen stone. Those who were in his company had a consistent sense of security within his realm. It was common knowledge that Morgan served as the focal point of the gathering. He loved football, his mother, his family, his friends, and animals so much that he even adopted a lion and an elephant in Cape Town, which is located in South Africa. He was very close to his friends and family. Morgan Huxley reached the age of 31 in the year 2013. And owing to the ocean engineering degree he had earned, he was now the proud owner of a small firm that he operated all by himself. This company specialized in the construction of pontoons, sea walls, and jetties. The firm, which went by the name Huxley Marine, had only recently been successful in gaining a significant contract to construct a pedestrian promenade along the central coast. And it should come as no surprise that Morgan felt a great deal of excitement about this. His company was at last beginning to flourish. He did not work the standard 9-to-5 schedule at this employment. It was a labor of love for him. The thing that got him out of bed and motivated him to work each day. There was one additional reason to rejoice about this turn of events. Chris Moroni, Morgan's best friend was planning to tie the knot in the following weeks and months. And with that out of the way, it was time to start making plans for the engagement party. The party that Chris was throwing started on the 7th of September. The guys appeared to have had a little too much to drink as they were enjoying their barbecue. Since Morgan was unable to locate his shoes by the time the night came to a conclusion, as soon as the clock struck midnight, the gang started breaking up and going their own ways to go home. The group of people, including Morgan, eventually made their way back to Neutral Bay after getting a taxi with a handful of his other bodies. It wasn't quite time for Morgan to call it a night just yet. At his favorite neighborhood bar, which was called the Oaks, he desired to have one more drink with his companions. But, alas, the others weren't interested so they chose to call it a night instead of continuing the conversation. Morgan, however, was not deterred by this, and he proceeded to the nearby ATM before proceeding to the pub. At 1 o'clock, surveillance footage from the morning of September 8 shows Morgan Huxley making his way inside the Oaks for one more drink before leaving. He wasn't troubled by the fact that he was by himself since, to a justifiable extent, he preferred his own company, and the pub was only 200 meters away from his flat, so it was simple for him to go back there. After that, he sat down close to the entrance of the house and watched TV while also looking through his phone and drinking a beer. And up, uh, he is doing all of this without his shoes on. After a half hour had passed, the bar was getting ready to close for the night. As a direct consequence of this, Morgan was requested to leave the premises, and just after 1.25 m, CCTV cameras observed him exiting the Oaks and proceeding down Military Road. Additional video cameras caught him as he walked up Military Road and onto Watson Street, which is where his apartment is located. When he reached his apartment and closed the door behind him, 
the cameras recorded that he had successfully returned home. Jean, Morgan's roommate and housemate, was also present at the residence. Jean had trouble sleeping on a regular basis, and to make matters worse, she was a light sleeper to begin with. At this hour in the morning, which was 13.30, she was already in bed and making an effort to get some rest. And after she was inside and had heard that Morgan had arrived, she put her headphones on and started listening to some music. After 15 minutes had passed, she became aware of a knock at the front door. But while she continued to believe that the plot was being carried out by Morgan's friend, she and drifted back to sleep. Jean was roused from her sleep once again for a total of the third time as the hour progressed and the clock struck 230. On the other hand, the sounds that she can now hear coming from Morgan's room sounded quite odd, more like the sound of snoring than anything else. The sound was middle, strained, and shrieking at the same time. This didn't seem like a good idea. Jean slipped out of bed in a stealthy manner to check on her roommate, before quietly opening the door to her bedroom and turning on the light in the corridor. What she discovered when she looked below her was horrifying and eerie. Morgan was found unconscious and covered in his own blood on the floor of the hallway that led to his bedroom. His respiration was all over the place, and he was hanging to life with hardly a thread. Jean, who was terrified and hopeless, placed a call for an ambulance. However, this was to no effect, as by 3.30 in the morning all had been in vain. Unfortunately, it was confirmed that Morgan Huxley had passed away. As soon as locals in the neighborhood around Morgan's apartment became aware of the disturbance, both a sense of melancholy and apprehension permeated the local community. Morgan's house and the area immediately surrounding it were sealed off. The body of Morgan was covered in knife cuts from head to toe. In point of fact, he had received a combined total of 28 stab wounds to the back, neck, shoulders, and head areas of his body. And to make matters even worse, the point of the weapon that was used against him was discovered embedded in the back of his head. It goes without saying that the experience was traumatic for Gene, and in the hours that followed, the lives of his family would be turned completely upside down. The recollections of a fun night out with his pals some of whom he had seen only a few hours before, were being replaced with images of his body. While those who were close to him mourned their loss, authorities were now tasked with the responsibility of determining what precisely happened to Morgan. He was widely liked by everyone and had no known adversaries. Despite the fact that he had irritated business partners in the past, nobody wished for his death. Concerns were also raised over the general safety of the area. In the event that this assault was not premeditated, will Morgan's assailant strike again? The location where Morgan was found dead was fortunate in that it included a large number of CCTV cameras. Additionally, they were able to trace his whereabouts in the hours preceding up to the time of his passing. Furthermore, what they discovered behind him was of far greater importance. After Morgan had left the pub, the security tape that was captured after he had departed indicated that a young man with a slender build was sprinting after him. It's possible that the two have no connection at all. However, 
Given that the two guys were moving in the same direction within the same few seconds, there was a possibility that the other man, who remained unknown, observed or knew anything. After almost two weeks had passed since Morgan's passing, corresponding investigators began conducting a physical search for the unidentified individual. Images obtained through surveillance indicated that he was dressed in what seemed to be a catering uniform. As a result, it was very probable that he worked as a cook in the surrounding region. It just so happened that a barista working at the Sydney Cooking School became intrigued about the situation at the same time as detectives were combing the streets off of Military Row. If it weren't for this barista, the cops could have lost their chance to make an arrest since, after seeing the security film, he informed them that the man wearing the chef's pants was actually an employee at the establishment. Daniel Jack Kelso was the name of the individual in question. At the age of 22, Daniel was employed as a chef at the Sydney Cooking School. He was reserved and had a reputation for being socially uncomfortable and a bit of a nerd. Daniel had a shy personality, was underweight, and had a singular preference for the company of other guys. Based on most people's perceptions, he appeared to be completely innocent. He was a lover of true crime enjoyed playing video games, and was a huge admirer of the CSI series. Daniel Kelso, who was born in Wellington, New Zealand, was adopted by his foster parents, Mark and Lynn Kelso, shortly after his birth. Mark and Lynn took extremely good care of Daniel despite the fact that they were not able to provide him with a home with his biological mother and father. He enjoyed a wonderful and privileged upbringing and is now the proud owner of a real estate business owing to the efforts of his foster parents. The family's wealth was also pretty impressive. Daniel ultimately enrolled in Wall Tech to pursue a degree in hotel management. During his time there, he developed a strong desire to work in the culinary industry, an aspiration that would eventually come true. Unfortunately, by the year 2010, Daniel was receiving treatment for depression and was also on Cockwell, an antipsychotic medication. He made the decision to move to Sydney in order to be closer to his foster parents in the year 2010, which was three years before Morgan's passing. Despite these final troubling elements, Daniel did not have a record of any illegal activity. Daniel's denial that he was responsible for Morgan's death came as no surprise to Daniel's supervisor who had questioned him whether he was to blame for the death of Morgan. However, Daniel did mention that even if he were the murderer, the police would never be able to get him because he was too intelligent and knew too much about true crime. It was discovered that Daniel had in fact come into contact with Morgan on the same night that he passed away. However, everything transpired inside the neighborhood convenience store previous to him going into the Oaks as far as we can tell. This did not, however, explain why he was chasing after Morgan after he left the pub. It was highly weird because further camera tape appeared to show him waiting for Morgan on the opposite side of the road. As a direct consequence of this, Daniel was questioned as soon as he was brought in. I entered the convenience shop by walking in. After that, I engaged in a brief chat with this individual, Morgan. Morgan. Yes, Morgan. 
Yes. Morgan inquired as to whether or not I was interested in withdrawing money from the ATM. You were asked, right. Sorry. Me. I responded with a negative and then departed. During the entirety of the interview, Daniel gave the impression of being at ease while maintaining a level of relative composure. And as he was being questioned about fleeing, he offered up a number of bizarre explanations. It's a really chilly day. My mother constantly told me that if I was chilly, I should look for a job. If you're shivering, I'm simply curious as to why you would choose to proceed in that manner. That doesn't appear to be the quickest or easiest way to get there. I really have no idea. When I'm really exhausted, I find that I pay less attention to a variety of different things. He even made the odd joke or witty comment. How long have you been making jokes? Not very far. It's possible that I'm the only person who can tell you this, but I'm not very good at remembering things like that. Very fast forward. I'm sorry to say this, but you don't have a very good memory for not tiny details. Now, as Daniel was being questioned, the information that DNA was discovered at the crime site was brought to his attention. Daniel's refusal to offer his own DNA samples for comparison, after being asked whether he would be delighted to do so, sounded highly suspect to the investigators. I told you that we had found some DNA and fingerprints at the crime scene that took place at his house, guys, and that I had asked you if you were willing to offer a sample of your DNA and your fingerprints, but that you had informed us that you weren't comfortable doing so. I also told you that we had found some DNA and fingerprints at the crime scene that took place at his house. Is that what you mean? You have that exactly right. Daniel was finally permitted to return home because there was insufficient DNA evidence or other evidence linking him to the location of the crime. But just two days after that, the primary investigator in the case got a phone call. It was Daniel who did it. In addition to this, he stated that he wasn't telling the whole truth when he initially answered the question. After their most recent conversation, he expressed interest in having a second conversation with an officer, and as a result, they decided to meet at the Woolworth Scar Park in Neutral Bay. During this time, Daniel admitted that, contrary to popular belief, he had been at Morgan's on the night that he was murdered. According to the legend, after establishing eye contact with Morgan, they exchanged a few words while walking along Military Street on their way home. It would appear that Morgan was upset, as he reported to Daniel that he had a hard week, the most of which was due to issues at work. When Daniel departed, he said that he observed an angry lady entering the flat, and the rest is history. Daniel apparently asked Morgan if he wanted to talk about it, and Morgan supposedly consented. One thing led to another, and evidently the two finally had intercourse. This appeared to be a fabrication. Officers found no evidence to support the hypothesis that Morgan had ever engaged in sexual intercourse with other males. And as a direct consequence of it, Daniel was taken into custody right away. Additional interrogation began, and in the meanwhile, the detectives were eager to get DNA samples from Daniel as well as his suitcase. During the prior interview, 
they observed a peculiar appearing stain on his backpack. As a result, DNA samples were gathered for examination. On the other hand, this wouldn't be available for several days. Because no new information had come in, Daniel was permitted to go without being held accountable in any way, and there were no accusations brought against him. And now is the point at which our narrative takes an unexpected and ominous turn. The examination of the discolored area on Daniel's bag revealed that it was, in fact, blood when broken down into its component pots. And to be more explicit, Morgan was the owner of that item. The results of the analysis also showed that the fingerprint that was discovered on Morgan's bedroom door belonged to Daniel. And to make matters even worse, the alien DNA of Daniel was discovered on Morgan's body. While this was going on, detectives were also following up with a few psychologists who had provided evidence of his experience with their client Daniel. And the evaluations with these experts indicated a man with disturbing ideas as well as an innate passion for blades. In the month of May in 2012, exactly 16 months prior to Morgan's passing, Daniel spoke up to Dior. Daniel's about his twisted dreams. Susan Alman. He revealed to her that he was experiencing disturbing ideas of stealing a knife from the cookery school where he worked in Sydney and then using it to stab someone on the way home. Even more shocking, he admitted to her that he had once stolen the knife from the workplace. However, I was unable to find a suitable position. On the drive back to the house, Daniel revealed that he, too, had not given any thought to the potential outcomes. One month later, during another session with the doctor, his fantasy of Daniel gloated was brought up once more. He would only end up behind bars if he deliberately tried to be apprehended. However, when questioned further, Daniel stated that he did not want to kill anyone. Hence, the conversation was no longer monitored. Daniel Kelso was ultimately apprehended and charged with Morgan's murder on October 8, 2013. According to the findings of a core bonding study, fingerprints, and reports from psychologists, Daniel made an attempt while he was here to claim that he suffered from Asperger's syndrome and autism, and that this explained his conduct. But in the end, it was discovered that they were all falsehoods, since his conduct didn't exactly follow the pattern that was predicted based on his assertions. Once again, at the beginning of this trial, Daniel asserted that their sexual activity had been voluntary. It was well knowledge that Morgan was a male who identified as straight. It was never discovered that he had any hidden dating accounts. No witnesses ever came forward, and there was no evidence on social media to show that he had any gay aspirations. The court would eventually become aware of Daniel's troubled history at some point. He was given a number of diagnoses, including Asperger's syndrome, bipolar disorder, autism, and depression. In addition to floxetine and an antipsychotic medication, which Daniel was given as treatment for his bipolar illness, Daniel was also given an antipsychotic medication. It goes without saying that he had certain problems that needed to be resolved. In spite of the mountain of evidence that was piling up against him, Daniel Kelso entered a not guilty plea for the murder of Morgan Huxley.
This, despite the fact that it was probably not at all surprising. So, what precisely took place on the evening of the night Morgan passed away? On his walk home from the ball, it is easy to deduce that Daniel was following closely behind him and trying to catch up. However, what then? There is a good chance that Daniel and Morgan never truly communicated with one another. After Morgan got back to his house, the first thing he did was head to his bedroom and then he opened the window. After that, he went to sleep on his bed, most likely as a result of the alcohol he had consumed. After following Morgan for 15 minutes, Daniel decided to knock on the front door. When he did not receive an answer, he saw that the door was unlocked and continued his pursuit of Morgan. Morgan had a terrible pattern of always walking out of the house without locking the front door. A measurement of 0.22 for his blood alcohol content indicates that he was quite intoxicated and most likely forgot to shut the door. Daniel snuck inside the house after seeing that the entrance was ajar, carefully navigated his way up the stairs, and then found himself standing in front of two bedroom doors. Morgan's door was locked, but Jean's was cracked open just a little bit. Daniel peered inside and noticed that Morgan was asleep. Since the man was not on watch, this presented Daniel with the chance to act on his urge. This occurred at the same time that Daniel started sexually assaulting Morgan. It's possible that he woke up feeling angry and confused. In spite of this, Daniel proceeded to stab him a total of 28 times before the victim was able to regain his composure and fight back. Daniel got up as Morgan lay dying on his own bed, took his mobile phone, and sneaked out of the house. After leaving the house in silence, he disposed of the knife in Morgan's phone before going back to his own residence. After that, he changed into his pajamas, climbed into his own bed, and started playing video games on his PlayStation Viter. Gene awoke a short time after the occurrence to discover Morgan making his final motions from his bed to the entranceway of the room. And to tell you the truth, I have no idea how far this would have forced Jean out of her comfort zone. I can't even begin to comprehend it. Imagine for a second that you are in the center of your regular house when all of a sudden you walk into the next room and find yourself in the middle of the body of your closest body who was recently murdered. The proceedings of this case attracted a lot of attention in Australia while they were being carried out. And unfortunately, the name of Morgan was dragged through the mud by the media. They even put the responsibility for his own passing on him on several occasions. On the other hand, Daniel appeared to thrive off of the limelight, and as a result, he was soon referred to as the baby-face killer of Sydney. The trial against Daniel lasted for a total of two weeks, yet it only took the jury three hours to come to a decision. They came to the conclusion that he was responsible for the death of Morgan Huxley. As a direct consequence of this, Daniel Kelsall was given a sentence of 40 years in prison, with a prerequisite of 30 years served before being eligible for parole consideration. In accordance with the terms of his sentence, he will become eligible for release in the year 2044. The judge stated that she was unable to determine whether Daniel killed for the joy of it, whether it was a consequence of fantasy or obsession, or if it was a result of both. 
It was completely pointless and unnecessary to do so. And Kelsey is the only one who knows the reason why he did it. The psychologists who evaluated Daniel were of the opinion that he would kill again if given the opportunity to do so. A few ingential details pertain to this investigation, but one of Morgan's friends recalls an evening spent at the Oaks around five and a half months before to Morgan's death. Morgan shared with them all a story that he thought was rather alarming about an incident that occurred one night when a young man who Morgan believed was gay followed him home down Watson Street to eat. Morgan assumed that the young and seemingly insignificant man was merely making idle conversation and that perhaps they resided in the same apartment complex. However, once the man opened his front door to bid him farewell, another man strolled right by him and inside the house. After that, Morgan shoved him out the door. However, he never reported it to police, and after relaying this incident to his bodies, he then brushed it off before chatting about other topics. He did not report it. Within a week of Morgan's passing, two other men in Neutral Bay came forward to say that a young guy had followed them and harassed them as well. Morgan's death was the catalyst for these men to come forward. Daniel who was found to be the one responsible for the stalking, was found to be wearing the same cook's outfit as previously. Who can say for sure what would have transpired if Daniel hadn't been apprehended so quickly? Daniel has already filed an appeal in the hopes of having the 10 years added to his sentence reduced. On the other hand, this appeal was finally denied in October of 2017. And it would appear, according to sources within the correctional facility, that he is having so much jail sex with other convicts that he is seldom able to participate in any of the correctional facility's activities. This was a really peculiar circumstance. Very. Typically, there is some kind of rationale or purpose for a crime. But in this instance, much as the one with Luke Fawcett, it appeared to be mindless. If there was a motive at all, it was to indulge a depraved dream. And as a result of all of this, Daniel has messed up the lives of Morgan's family, his foster family, and of course, all of his other close pals. Morgan has a reputation for being an uplifting and enjoyable presence in everyone's lives. He was devoted to his family, pursued the things that interested him, and had many exciting things in store for the future. And tragically, he was taken from us by the mindless actions of Daniel Kelso, who took his own life. I would like to express my gratitude to all of you who have joined us today to delve into the dark world of crime. If you found our last case enlightening or intriguing, please don't forget to click the like button and subscribe to our channel for more chilling updates. As we investigate the depths of depravity in our society, I urge you to share your thoughts and theories in the comment box below. I never miss a chance to read your twisted ideas and twisted minds. I want to thank those of you who have been following this case closely, and I promise you that there will be more spine-chilling cases to come. Until then, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled for the monsters lurking in the shadows. Goodbye for now.